Hello, it's Roz Taylor. If you're not following The Bunker on Twitter, why not? We're at Bunker underscore pod with previews, extra info, robust debate and much more. Welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. So, are we in for another 1997 or another 1992? This is the question that's haunting Labour supporters. And if you're old enough to have experienced the party's surprise defeat against John Major's supposedly dead and buried Tories in 1992, you'll know exactly why. Some two years afterwards in The Independent, a trio of cephalogical gurus, including John Curtis, called 1992 one of the mysteries of 20th century politics. Here was a governing party, they wrote, which had been in power for 13 years, fighting a campaign at the end of the longest recession for more than 50 years. Unemployment was rising. Interest rates were above 10%. House prices had collapsed. Yet the parties were neck and neck through the campaign. And on the night, the government claimed 42.8% of the vote. Labour got just 352 It turned out that the Tories had lost only a fraction of the vote they recorded in 1987. And the only more remarkable event was that the Labour Party turned it round for 1997 and crushed the Conservatives, achieving a 179-seat majority. So what does all that mean for now? Keir Starmer's Labour currently enjoy a leader between 15 and 20% over the Tories, but the old question is haunting the party. Why did Labour lose so catastrophically in 1992 and yet turn it round for 1997? Are we facing another 1992 or another 1997 or maybe a bit of both? Steve Richards of the Rock and Roll Politics podcast has forgotten more about electoral politics than I will ever know. (laughs) And he is here to explain it to me as we party like it's 1992 or possibly 97. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Andrew, hi. Nice to be here to reflect on these dramas. Yes, and the consequences of them. And the consequences of them. So the night of the 9th of April 1992 will go down as one of the most crushing disappointments of my life. I was actually at Glenda Jackson's supposed victory party oh, in you? Camden Palace. And it was the most miserable bloody evening you could possibly imagine. Where were you? I was a BBC political correspondent working overnight to do the morning bulletins on the result to be the person delivering the news. And it was an extraordinary night. There was everyone was stunned. It's amazing how you become conditioned to expect a result. And when the opposite happens, it has whatever your views. And at the BBC, contrary to mythology, no one talked about their private views. It was all hidden away. Uh, But there was this sort of stunned mood. And of course, the BBC was involved because their exit poll uh, revealed at 10 o'clock reported it was going to be a hung parliament. Right. And Vincent Hanna, their polling guru, he shouldn't have done it because everyone's meant to not tell anyone. Phone Neil Kinnock up to say, look, it's going to be a hung parliament. You'll be prime minister. And then poor old Neil Kinnock suffered the trauma yeah. from which I've spoken to him often about of expecting a hung parliament and then losing, you know, um, and it, it is something leaders never get over. Yeah. So, I mean, I can remember that dead uncertainty. In fact, a, a mate of mine came to that party with me put his coat in and said so how, how much did we win by and the coat check person said you've lost mate he couldn't could not believe couldn't it believe it what went wrong because it was more than just that overconfident rally in sheffield oh much that, that was really nothing to do with it the the sheffield rally is an example of people looking for reasons 
afterwards mm. to make sense of it. You know, that if if uh, Labour had won, people have said, uh, as John Cole, the BBC political editor, said on the night of the Sheffield rally, wow, this is exciting. This reminds me of Kennedy at his peak, you know. So it, it wasn't that. I think, as ever with uh, these elections, there were two or three big factors. The biggest of all was John Major replacing Margaret Thatcher. And he was such a different character that people thought, as Neil Kinnock has reflected ever since, that there had been a change of government. Um, now, actually, as you suggest, it what there wasn't a big change, although they did scrap the poll tax, yeah. which had been the most unpopular policy, the way you raise money for local government. Um, so they changed the leader, and there was Major, a more modest figure than Thatcher at her most regal and slightly, frankly, bonkers phase at the end. And then you have to turn to Labour. And by 1992, Neil Kinnock had been Labour leader for nine years. He had um, given up every second of his 40s, as he says to me, Chris, what a bloody way to spend your 40s, <laughs> trying to reform Labour and so on. But nine years is too long. Mm. Uh, people by then are bored with you. You've had no power. All they see you doing is talking and giving interviews. Uh, you, you change nothing except for his party, which he did a lot to change. So they were fed up with Neil Kinnock and the newspapers had worked out ways of destroying him. And finally, Labour fell into the so-called tax and spend traps. They did an alternative budget, formally produced, where most people would be better off, but some would be taxed more. And the Tories and their newspapers portrayed this as a great tax bombshell. And people chose to believe it. So I think those were the three big factors that led to this extraordinary result. One of the myths also of the, that election was that uh, the, it was the sun what won it. And uh, their headline... Will the last person to leave Britain turn out the light of the light bulb with Kinnock's head inside? Yeah. And yet John Curtis and his colleagues' uh, 1992 election study, they found no support at all uh, that the Sun had, had, had won it. And in fact, amongst readers of pro-Tory tabloid support for the Conservatives fell during the campaign. Yeah. Yet there is still that mythology, isn't there, that like you've got to have the Murdoch press on side. Yeah, and certainly it was a big, big issue with when Tony Blair came in. But I still think the Sun over time did contribute to the destruction of Neil Kinnock for two reasons. First of all, they christened him the Welsh windbag in the autumn of 1983. He had only been leader for about four weeks. Yeah. Before that, if you, well, you won't remember because you're too young, but Neil Kinnock was quite a glamorous figure. He was on all the chat shows and everything. Yeah. The Sun found a way of destroying him very quickly as the Welsh windbag. And that went on for years and years, not just on election day 92. So I think they did have it an impact on the way voters saw him and then on his own self-confidence. Because if you wake up every day reading that you're useless, inexperienced, a Welsh windbag, you start thinking, oh, I better change. And he tried to become something that he wasn't. And so I think one way or another, the papers had a big impact. And clearly that's what uh, Tony Blair felt because, boy, did he woo them when he got in. This is in the distant past. What was in Labour's policy tank in 1992 and did any of it really survive? Well, one of the uh, issues was that there wasn't really a great big idea to excite voters. John Smith, the shadow chancellor, was quite a small C conservative in some ways. So Neil Kinnock, for example, wanted there to be a big idea of a 
tax to pay for improvements in the NHS, which was on its knees by 92. And he was ready to go out and evangelise for that. John Smith vetoed it. Uh, And John Smith was in a very strong position. He was much the most popular figure, um, way higher ratings than Neil Kinnock. And Neil Kinnock felt powerless. So their big idea was a degree of redistribution. Pensions were going to go up quite a lot and more for the NHS. There were various other public spending commitments that it wasn't quite clear how they were going to be paid for. And that led to this whole tax bombshell argument. But uh, they didn't have one great big idea. They used the slogan, time for change, time for labour. And that time for change message quite often works, but it didn't in 1992. It's interesting that you mentioned the poll tax a minute ago, because again, from Curtis's uh, election survey, People talked about poll tax deregistration. As many as half a million voters didn't register because they wanted to avoid the poll tax. I would never do such a thing, of course. I would make sure that I was uh, registered to vote. Not entirely different from the voter ID situation we find ourselves in now. Uh, According to to the election survey, it gave the Tories an extra 0.5%, which may have just slightly tipped a few seats. Uh, If one makes, they say, some heroic assumptions about the distribution of the votes. Yeah, well, there is an argument that the distribution of votes was such that it would have taken very little. Remember, John Major only won a tiny majority, 23, yeah. I think it was. So it wouldn't have taken much for it to be a hung parliament, even though, as you said at the beginning, he got a much bigger share of the vote. He only got a majority of 23. Yeah. So it, maybe those poll tax voters if they who deregistered had if they were spread around in marginal seats, that would have made all the difference. Uh, The poll tax was a huge moment. I I covered it very, very closely. And it was fascinating to see Tory councils turn against a Tory government. And Thatcher described it as her flagship policy. So in a way, it's a bit like Brexit with Boris Johnson. The way they dealt with it was they got rid of her. And then John Major came in and got rid of the policy. You do learn more from defeat than you do from victory. And uh, my mates who worked on the 1992 Labour campaign and then subsequently, the way they describe it is like a kind of existential psychological shock, a real trauma at your heart. And what they took out of it for the following years was leave nothing to chance, not a single thing. Don't do anything that's not necessary to win and do everything that is necessary to win. They did things like creating the pre-bottle units where they'd be able to defend um, any criticisms before they'd even been made, all this stuff. Do you think that the current Labour command is looking at that period of Labour when it was just, it was like a winning machine? Yeah, yeah. What are they taking from that? Are they taking A, a lot, some good things, some I think that they need to be very careful about because, you know, a spoiler alert for our wider theme, no election is the same. But what they are taking from it is... Um, I think a lot of the post-92 lessons, you're right. I once got a call from the acting deputy head of the pre-buttle unit. (laughs) How about that? The deputy head was on. So that's how staffed it was, the re-buttle unit or what pre-buttle unit. What they are trying to take from it is exactly that. Don't promise anything that you can't cost. Absolutely bomb-proof whatever policy you announce so it cannot fall apart during an election campaign. Because Blair and Brown grew up in one election defeat after another. Mm. They were MPs in 83. The 87 election economic policy fell apart during the election. 
Can I just tell you a hilarious story that Roy Hattersley tells? Roy Hattersley was shadow chancellor in the 87 election. And he had just been in what was meant to be a triumphant rally in Cambridge under the banner, Come Home to Labour, because it had gone SDP. And afterwards, he was on the 10 o'clock Saturday News Bulletin live to portray this Labour, people coming home to Labour. And the news, this is Roy Hattersley's account. The newsreader said to Roy Hattersley, would you consider putting up the basic rate of tax by three quarters of a pence, thereby bridging the gap to improve the NHS? He said that would be complete economic illiteracy. Of course, we wouldn't consider such a thing. Well, that's what your leader, Neil Kinnett, <laughs> suggested this afternoon. Um, and Hattersley says on that, I did the only thing available to me in that situation. I attacked the interviewer. <laughs> and then he said he went back to his hotel room and phoned John Smith and said to John Smith, his good friend, how bad was it? And John Smith replied, much worse than you even think. <laughs> and so, so these things all went wrong. So Blair and Brown decided to bomb-proof everything. And even if that stopped them making promises, and it, it really did, it was a very cautious incremental manifesto, nothing went wrong, nothing imploded. And I think Starmer's trying to learn that lesson, so is Rachel Reeves. The problem they've got is in 97, the economy was growing. We were still in Europe. So we were still thriving in the single market. Mm -hmm. It was made for us, the single market. And so there were ways and Brown and Ed Balls, his advisor, knew this, that they could raise money once they were in government, which they couldn't talk about in advance because it would be a tax bombshell. Now, no growth we're out of the single market, out of the European Union altogether, Ukraine and an energy crisis. And yet, actually, more need for big things to happen. People are, yeah. this phrase, nothing's working. So I think they need to be bigger now, uh, if I were advising. But uh, they are following the caution, it seems, of the Blair Brown of 97. Before we go on to talk about 2024 or maybe even 2023, uh, I can ask you again, what are your memories of this campaign? As, as 97. Yeah, because I just found my old John Prescott battle bus badge. It's a <laughs> tiny thing. And it was a real kind of rosebud. Oh, my God. Because yeah, yeah. I remember it being, for once, terribly exciting with the yeah. scent of victory at the end of it. Yeah, I, I covered it very closely. In, in the build-up, interviewed everybody. I was then political editor of The New Statesman. And we had access to die for, to be honest. It was exciting. It was, it was sunny. And I was invited, actually, to the Royal Festival Hall overnight celebration. And I, have, I remember there a surreal moment. And this shows both the excitement and the insecurity. There was dancing to Simply Red, who were playing yeah. live. Um, and I weirdly... I didn't play Money's Too Tight to Mention, because that would have been very <laughs> well, unfortunate. <laughs> exactly. And um, although if they had, Gordon Brown would have nodded, because <laughs> he was being prudent prudent though for a purpose and on the dance floor for some bizarre reason I found myself dancing opposite David Miliband and we were dancing away and um, he just said to me I'm sure we'll wake up tomorrow and find it's all a dream and that <laughs> shows you see, that they were so used to losing yeah that even while they were celebrating they couldn't quite believe it um, but there was this great sense of 
excitement. And that landslide was so historic that I think it created an even greater sense of excitement, that people forgot the manifesto was quite incremental, keeping to Tory spending plans, not putting up income tax, referendums before you get a Scottish parliament, etc. But that majority was so mind-blowing that um, there was real excitement around well, while you were grooving away to things can only get better. Yeah, what we, were you doing? Uh, well, I was. Uh, we were outside Conservative Central Office gloating. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I've told this story previously on Oh God, What Now, but I'm going to do it again because it's pretty much the only interesting story I've got. We thought we're going to go down to Smith Square and just see what's what's happening. So we piled into my beetle and my brother had a bottle of whiskey on which he'd written Victory of Socialism and a Hammer and Sickle <laughs> in Magic Marker. But we'll go outside and see what happens. So we're out there's various sort of disconsolate figures heading in. Rustling out of the bushes comes Alan Clark MP. Oh, Alan Clark. My brother offers him a bottle of whiskey and says, Lord Clark, you must lead the party. (laughs) But the really crazy thing was we're sort of standing in the the little um, gardeny bit and a people carrier sort of slowly comes in. Who's going to get out of this? Is it going to be major? Is it going to be whomever? And then this thing sort of slowly glides past and we see it's full of balloons. And then we look in the window and in the window is Prescott and he's grinning at us doing two thumbs up. And he'd gone to do a drive by at Conservative Central oh, Office brilliant. before heading off to, you know, dance to things and get better with you. Yeah. So it was, yeah. it was a mad and a surreal, strange, it, it strange was, evening. It was a, an evening of that anyone who sort of was there in any shape or form will never forget yeah. because, I mean, Labour loses most elections and therefore to win as big as that. You know, before then, you know, you always wondered what the move was was, was in 1945. Yes. Labour won a landslide and expected to have lost to Winston Churchill. Well, we sort of got a hint of it, probably yeah. only a hint on that night when you were at Central Office and yeah. I was rocking in festival, the Festival Hall. Now, the revisionist take on this during the Corbyn years was that well, anybody would have beaten the Tories then. They were in such decay. Black Wednesday, absolute collapse of government. Is there anything in that? I think the Tories were almost doomed to lose in 97. But the almost is quite important because we've talked about 92. England doesn't need much of an excuse to vote Tory. Yeah. And you have to... And the bar for Labour winning is much higher than the bar for Conservatives to win. And therefore, every election is a big, big challenge for a Labour leader, stroke shadow chancellor. They're the big mm. two. And so it wasn't inevitable. But they, the Tories were in a real mess then. John Major, who was a decent person, uh, just was in despair by the end. And it was in despair over running his parliamentary party. As you said earlier, you know, Every election is different. You can't make comparisons. And in a sense, like, is it 92 or 97? It's just, it's just a, a lens to look through. It's going yeah. to be neither of those things. It's yeah. going to be 2024. It's going to be 2024. Uh, that said, Keir Starmer's five missions is an absolute echo of Blair's five pledges, isn't it? Yeah. And I just wondered, is this like a goalie kicking the, the, the uprights three times? You know, just before, it's almost <laughs> talismanic, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there are echoes because... So I think it's very interesting. You see, Keir Starmer has got two former prime ministers, Labour prime ministers, who are still young enough to be politically active. Former Labour leader Ed Miliband, former Labour leader Jerry Corbyn. He can't move mm. for former Labour leaders and prime ministers. He is listening, as we've already discussed, a lot to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. So you will hear many echoes of New Labour then with what they're saying and doing 
now, of which the five missions is a direct echo. Now, I think we still might get five pledges, actually, because the missions are slightly different to pledges. Um, However, the context is much closer to 92. You know, economic uh, darkness, much worse than in 92, uh, although it was bad in 92. So that is a closer context, but he is lifting quite a lot of new labour in 97. Do you think that uh, Liz Truss and the Kamikaze budget is uh, is basically Black Wednesday, the moment when trust is lost forever? It seems so, although, of course, in changing their leader, they might go back to 92. They might mm. do, have done a John Major and Sunak uh, becomes uh, an altogether different proposition. But it looks, we can almost tell that voters in England will tolerate a lot from a Tory government. They tolerated Boris Johnson. Yeah. It's unbelievable that he won, he gained that by-election in Hartlepool, given what he was doing at the time vis-a-vis the pandemic. But trust and the currency crisis, the rise in interest rates, the sense of chaos seems to, you know, they're miles, but they, that's when they went miles behind. And similarly with John Major after Black Wednesday, they never were in the lead again throughout that whole period. So for England to turn, it looks as if it needs something like that. And then it's very hard for them to bring it back. Well, hindsight is a terrible thing and sometimes a completely useless thing. But in 1994, the British election survey, which I keep quoting for the independent, Labour, we conclude, can easily end the long Tory dominance. But without an unprecedented and improbable swing, it cannot win outright. And that's exactly what happened, an unprecedented and improbable yeah, swing. Yeah, yeah. And they need, they, they need the same. And of course, the other thing that's changed since 97, although they need the unprecedented, improbable swing, is Scotland. Yeah. Now, maybe it would rechange <laughs> with the post-Sturgeon situation, but it won't rechange to the point it was in 97, where they were still completely dominant in Scotland. So it's going to need a huge swing. And as I say, the judgment, and it's a really difficult one for Starmer, is whether you just say very little, just policies that symbolise bigger ambition and without costing much money, and hope that the anti-Tory mood is such that they come for you, or whether you go for something bigger. Well, the good news is we're going to find out whether we like it or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've only got, what, 18 months to wait. Something it's like a that. long time, actually. You know, yeah. it'll fly by. Um, but it's very hard for an opposition. Blair was a genius at it, at timing when you say things. Because Starmer did his big thing on the five missions. Yeah. And people said, well, where's the beef? But if you'd given all the beef then, there's another 18 months to go. We've still got two more budgets before the next election. So he couldn't have given... It would have been wrong to give too much detail. But then you get done for being too waffly and airy-fairy, you know. So managing this period involves real artistry. And I say Blair was an absolute genius. He read the rhythms with the help of others, just like a musician reads rhythms. And that's what's required for opposition in the last 18 months. When you say things, it's as important as what you say. Steve, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks for coming into the bunker. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Listeners, remember there are no certainties in life except that you can help The Bunker keep coming out every day with your own small contribution. Back us on Patreon and you will get every episode early and without ads, plus merchandise even more stylish than my vintage demonised tie. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. We'll see you tomorrow. Remember, new bunker, new danger. 
The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>